My name is Elaine, and I'm an alcoholic. And that's why I'm here. I'm here because I, not because you're alcoholics, but because I am. I'm here not because I have any great wisdom to give you, any of you that's going to keep you sober, but because I want to stay sober. And I'll just bet there's some young people sitting out there that are saying to themselves, now what would that fat old lady who has been sober so long she's forgotten what it was like have to say that I can use? Well, let me tell you, I wasn't always fat. <laughs> and I wasn't always old. And I wasn't always a lady. <laughs> And you don't get to be what they call an old-timer by forgetting what it was like. One of the reasons I accept when I am asked to talk or chair or 12-step or do whatever is because early on they beat it into me. You do what you do in AA to keep yourself sober. We haven't got any do-gooders. You do what you do for yourself. It's a selfish program. And since I had at one time been a do-gooder, as a matter of fact, I belonged to a group of women in Cheyenne, Wyoming, that were do-gooders. <laughs> Long time ago. I, uh, that was important to me, to get that straight. I came to AA. I, I'm not going to go way back into my childhood, but I, in my opinion, was born alcoholic. I uh, came to AA two years after the death of a beloved husband and the end of an extraordinarily happy marriage. And when Mac died, and I was left to my own resources, I found that I really didn't have any. I was pretty much at sea. My son was 10 months old when my husband was killed. And instead of admitting that I was sorry for myself or angry for my own loss, I have a twisty mind. And I said, you know, God, that was a pretty dirty trick. Because this child really needed a good father, and he really would have been a good father. I twisted everything always. But I, uh, I was fairly successful. I was pretty good in my work. And I came back to Denver, and I got a top job. And the drinking was getting much worse, much quicker. And the day came that I had a martini for lunch and I didn't ever go back to work. And what had happened was that I had reached the binge stage of alcoholism. I, did, I never drank in the morning until I hit the binge stage. That's way down at the bottom of that curve. And after two weeks, two weeks after that martini for lunch, 
as I crawled up my front steps, and I was moving at the time, and my house was a wreck. And I stood in that room, and I looked at the wreckage of my house, and I saw the wreckage of my life. Only two people had said to me anything about drinking or alcoholism. One was my three-year-old son. I used to come home from work, always came home, but before I even took my hat off, we wore hats in those days, I fixed myself a drink. And sometimes Johnny's dinner got delayed. And one night he reached up and he put his hand on my arm and he said, Mommy, don't have another drink. And I heard it, didn't pay much attention to it. And then two months before my experience of seeing the wreckage of my life, a friend of mine, a good friend, who was a judge and who knew something about alcoholism and alcoholics, was drinking with me one night. And he said to me, Elaine, what in hell do you think you're doing yourself? Why don't you go to AA? And I laughed merrily, and I hoisted my glass, and I said, I belong to Alcoholics Unanimous. <laughs> but that morning, I remembered what Mitch had said. And I sat there in the wreckage of my room, in the wreckage of my life, trying to figure out what had happened. And I thought, maybe I'm just a natural-born bum. But I had lived well in my life, and I knew that that was not true. And I had thought for some time that I was flipping out, that I was going insane, and that one day the men in the little white coats would come and they would haul me off, and I'd never come back. And then what Mitch had said to me came to my mind, and I thought, I wonder if I could be an alcoholic. So I called 1311 York, and I went to AA to find out if I was an alcoholic. And in my case, that was something like a woman in the seventh month of her pregnancy going to the doctor to find out if she's pregnant. <laughs> but I had a good friend. I, have a, I had a secretive nature. And I had kept it pretty well hidden, although I was a bar drinker. My behavior was erratic, most certainly. But you see, I was losing my mind. And a couple, a month or so before this had happened, I had called a friend in Nebraska to come and get Johnny because I wasn't taking proper care of him. And I wanted him safe until I could get on my feet or until I flipped out and they hauled me off. I realized, of course, later that it just cleared the decks so that I could go from work to the bar instead of going from work to home to take care of my child. So I came into AA and I don't remember who spoke at my first meeting. I don't remember anything they said. But I remember that they laughed. 
that they spoke of things that embarrassed me in myself. They spoke of things that I, have, I was ashamed of, that I had hidden. And they laughed together at these things. The people reached out and took hold of me. And I knew that very first night that although I had always, I had been a gregarious person, I got along well with people, I liked people, I liked crowds, but in myself, I was a stranger in a strange land. And that first night in AA, I knew that these were my people. They kidded me about my shaking hands, but they weren't speaking from a distance above me. They, they were talking about something they knew about. And they knew I was home. So I dived right in. The only thing was, I didn't like the idea of being sober. I didn't like the idea of quitting drinking. No way. But for two months, I'm pretty good at picking up lingo. And I'm pretty good at people-pleasing, was. So I arranged my face in the proper expression, and I said all the right things about how great it was to be sober, how wonderful to wake up in the morning and not wonder what I had done the night before. And then I began to say, I've never been in a hospital. I've never been in a jail. None of the terrible things I hear people speak of have happened to me. I don't think I'm really an alcoholic. And then I was suddenly taken drunk. And I had heard people during those two months say, you know, that they'd seen so-and-so who was drunk and it sure, it sure kept them sober to see so-and-so that was drinking. They'd seen so-and-so who was drunk and it sure didn't make them want to take a drink. So in the midst of my drunk, I showed up at 1311, very drunk, very belligerent, no more pretty people pleasing. And I said, here I am. You say it's seeing people like me that keeps you sober will take a good goddamn look. <laughs> and he said, uh, you know, sit down, have a cup of coffee. <laughs> that went on and off and on and off and it got worse. i tell you something. When you get to the place where I was, from there on, it's like falling off a cliff. There aren't any stops on the way down. And I made the jail. And I made the hospital three times. And I woke up in the little room with uh, no doorknob on the inside. And I woke up wrapped up in a straitjacket. And I began to realize that uh, I was in real big trouble. I was, I never remember going into the hospital. They had one 
mental facility in Denver, and that's where they lock up the drunks, if they could pay for it. And that's where I woke up three times. And I, we had a psychiatrist who was a drunk, and he was my doctor. And he came in and I said, Oh, God, Dr. Ed, I'll do anything, anything. And he said, Sure you will. You're in the trap. When you're in the trap, you'll do anything to get out. But how do you act when you get out, Elaine? Then what? He walks out the door, that's all he said, for 50 bucks. That's all he had to say. I got that message. Then I went to him after I got out of the hospital, and I said, I don't seem to be able to stay sober. Do you think a course of psychiatric treatment would be a benefit to me? And he said, you know, Elaine, you're just a plain garden variety drunk. You have no psychoses. I can't do a thing for you that I can't do for you. You run along and go to your meetings. So I came back. And people had started to say to me, you don't have a sincere desire to stay sober. Ooh, they said it frequently. <laughs> and that last time I came back, I'd been drinking down on Skid Row that time. And I wound up in just about the worst hotel in the city of Denver. And I was scared when I realized where I was. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, I called a little Chicano guy that was great AA. And I said, hey, Rube, I don't know whether I want to stay sober or not, but it sure went out from where I am. He said, where are you? And I told him, and he said, uh-huh, I'll come and get you. <laughs> so he put his wife on the phone, and she kept me on the phone until he could get there. And I came back, and then I said to people, you're right. I do not have a sincere desire to stay sober. Now you tell me how I get it. I got some answers, but they, they, you know, some people said, well, you can drink yourself into it. The hell you can. <laughs> I've seen too many people die trying. They, they really couldn't answer me. And when I was new, when I'd first gotten there, and they talked about spiritual side of the program, I said, oh, I won't have any trouble with that. I've always been a very religious woman. And never dreaming of the great difference between, there can be, between being religious and a spiritual program. Well, I didn't have a sincere desire to be sober, and I could feel the drunk coming. And I didn't know what to do, and nobody could tell me. So one night I sat on the edge of my bed. I didn't kneel. I didn't use any formalized form of prayer. I just sat on the edge of the bed. By that time, I wasn't too sure if there was anybody there. But I said, as though I, as I'm talking to you, God, I'm not even sure you're there anymore. But if you are, here I am, and I can see clearly that I am going to be dead, locked up, or sober 
I have no other choices, and I still don't want to be sober. So if you're there and you can create in me this desire for, for sobriety, I ask that you do. And there was no flash of lightning or bolt of thunder or burning bush, my name ain't Moses. But some little thing happened and I didn't get drunk. And the only thing I had done right during that first year was go to meetings. The minute I got sober, went to meetings. Hated them, disagreed with everything they said, but I went to meetings. So I started going back to meetings again with this tiny, almost imperceptible change. And I began not only to listen, but to hear. And then I began to try to use it. For instance, he spoke of the 24-hour program. And that means a whole lot more than one day at a time. That means right now, this minute. And one morning, I'm standing on the corner and I'm late for work and I'm in a fuss and I'm just sure that the bus is going to be late. I'm going to be late for work and I'm going to have a rotten day. And it dawned on me this 24-hour program thing. And I thought, well, I'll try it. So I forced myself. I looked around. It was a nice day. And I spoke to somebody standing close to me. Good morning. How are you? What's good? You know. The bus came. Got on the bus talked to people, looked around, nice day, got to work, was late, but everything was okay and it wasn't a rotten day. And that's the 24-hour program, right now, this minute. The extreme example of that is, uh, what do they call it, uh, Buddhism, Yen Buddhism, something like that. Anyway, it's a story about a guy who was halfway up a cliff on a rope and there's a snake pit at his feet and there's tigers at the top and he's climbing along and he sees a flower growing out of the cliff and he says, what a lovely flower. That's the ultimate. The right now, this minute. That particular little usage got me through all sorts of big troubles. When I came in AA, there weren't any molehills in my life. Everything was a mountain. My child, the responsibility for him, my house, my job, the yard, the tenant, everything was driving me crazy. Everything was a mountain. No molehills. And then as I went along, things changed. All of a sudden, one day I'm sitting in the club and I'm thinking, gosh, you know, these things could be cleared out of my life. I could, my uh, alcoholic father was living with me too. I could lose my job, my house could burn down, my child could be taken away from me. I'm not sure that I want these things removed. And then one day I was sitting there and I was feeling altogether different about everything. 
those things that had been so heavy and so hard and so burdensome were my blessings. They changed. So it got sober, and I was working the program to the best of my ability. And about two years sober, I married a man who, that I had started going with when I was less than a year sober. And we were married, we were together ten years. And the time came that it became increasingly apparent that he was one of those people that the big book talked about who have grave mental and emotional disorders. I have heard people say of such people in AA, he's not a drunk, he's a psycho. Well, this man was both, unquestionably a drunk and increasingly psychotic. The day came that for the sake of my son and my own life, I had to leave him, and I was full of fear and full of anger. And of course I was not fair or kind to him. Wish I had been, but I wasn't. But I did have to separate the marriage. (coughs) And for the next year, I lived in fear of my life because he was threatening to kill me. And I said to his psychiatrist, is he dangerous? And the doctor said, to you, extremely. And I said, oh, that's nice. Can you keep him locked up? No. Can you at least notify me if he leaves the hospital? No. And he said, well, I hope you do realize that this is the way headlines are made. So I lived in this awful fear, terrible fear for a year. And of course, he came around periodically. And one day he called me and he said, I have a gun, I'm coming over, and I'm going to blow your head off. And by that time, you can, you can only live with fear so long. By that time, I couldn't live with it any longer. And I said to him, i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to open the door, and I'm going to sit here and wait for you, and you come, you son of a bitch. And he did not come and the fear was broken. But during that time, I was not refilling the reservoir. And I was running dry. And I was 10 years, 11 years over at that time. And there were people in the air who were saying, Elaine is not sober, she's just dry. And it was true. But I'll tell you something I learned then. Don't ever despise being dry. (coughs) Dry, I had a chance. They're right, that's all I was. Just dry, not sober. But dry, I had a chance. And I went back to work on the program and I realized that I had never really taken the fourth step at depth. I'd done two fourth steps up to that time. The first one showed me simply that I didn't have enough honesty to do it. That's all it showed me. That was a lot. 
and to go back a little bit, then I had chosen a woman in AA who had a reputation for ruthless honesty. And I asked her to be my sponsor, and I told her what I wanted of her. I said to her, I do not know how to be honest with myself. That's what I need you for. And she agreed, and we went to work. And it was pretty rough. But at this late date, ten years, I realized I had never taken a first step that reached down deep enough. And I needed to know what in me controlled my behavior that made me choose the wrong men for me. <coughs> and some of my other behaviors that I couldn't explain to myself and I couldn't seem to change. So I went for psychiatric help. And I got a young psychiatrist, and I liked him. But he said to me, I understand you're an alcoholic. And I said, that's correct. And he said, uh, how long has it been since you've had a drink? It was maybe 12 years then, whatever, I told him. And he said, don't you mean that you used to be an alcoholic? And I said, Dr. Egan, you and I will discuss anything in my thinking, my feeling, my behavior that is appropriate. But you and I will never again discuss alcoholism. <laughs> I've known people who happened to get a psychiatrist who wasn't too aware of alcoholism and convinced them that they weren't. That guy said to me once, I could convince you you're not an alcoholic. And I said, yes, you could. That's why I'm not going to listen to you. <laughs> so I worked with this young man, and there were breakthroughs, and I did get at some deep things that I desperately need. Then there came an event in the, in the course of my life that changed my life completely. It is difficult for me to speak of, as Dave found it difficult to speak, as we all do, of our children. My son, at 20, was injured in an automobile wreck. And they, called, they got hold of me, and I went immediately to the hospital. And he, they did not know from one minute to the next whether or not he would live. And if he lived, how severely brain damaged he might be. AA people came immediately to me. For three days and three nights, I didn't leave the hospital. And not for one moment of that time was I alone, night or day. There were two to twenty AA people there. That went on for twelve days. And the AA people surrounded us. They made a circle of love around Johnny and I. 
and on the twelfth day, God in his mercy gave Johnny permission to come home. Every minute of that time, there was the AA program, the 24-hour program, the right now this minute, I'm okay, and the AA people. Now I'm going to tell you something very strange. Teilhard de Chardon, who is a great theologian, has said, Joy is the most infallible sign of the presence of God. And as I sat in that hospital waiting room, there were moments, unbelievable, how could this be, that I knew joy. And after Johnny died, I was literally picked up and cradled. There were times of indescribable joys of joy, a poor word, it doesn't describe it. I was not only all right, I was more than that. I was poured full and overflowing. And the people around me were aware of it. And for the next few years, young women came to me, especially in that first year, and asked me to sponsor them. And about the eighth or ninth one was a young woman who came in, hippie, barefooted, long army coat, backpack, and people were saying, look at that, who's she? <laughs> and she was one of them who asked me to sponsor her. And I, by that time, I've always had to be very careful of this ego stuff. I thought, gee, you know, this has gone far enough. I'm going to start thinking I'm Mrs. A.A. <laughs> so I said to Shelley, no, no, I, I can't. And I went home and I sat down, and I don't hear voices. <coughs> but oh, I do get messages. I'm sitting there at home alone, and I'm thinking about this. And the little words came in my mind, Elaine, I'm not sending you these young women because you're so great. I'm sending them to you because you need them. And I said, oh. <laughs> and I got up and I went to the phone and I called Shelley and I said, can I change my mind? And that is the young woman who put together that little book of drug alcohol, the little wooden like the 24-hour book that's called One Day at a Time, that was the young woman who put that together. And she has been a great joy to me, as have most of the young women that I have sponsored. I have been really particularly blessed. I know that... Uh, I have not talked an hour, but I have told most of my story. And I'd like to close while your butt can still stand it. 
with a thing that I cut out of the grapevine many, many years ago. And I have used it many times to close an AA talk. And people have enjoyed it with me. It is appropriately called The Prayer of an Unknown Confederate Soldier. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given an infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for but everything I had hoped for. Almost in spite of myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed.